Welcome to Wealth Made Simple with Shaz, where you'll learn how to master your money through business, property, and tax saving strategies. Your host has collectively helped his clients make tens of millions of pounds in additional profits through these strategic approaches to business. Introducing Shaz Nawaz, an award-winning chartered accountant, property tax expert, entrepreneur, and property investor. I've never had a conversation with a single property investor to date who said, I don't want to pay any tax. Uh, The majority will say, I want to pay the right amount of tax. Once I know I've claimed all of my exemptions and expenses and allowances, uh, and everything else that exists. So I think property investors yeah. do get bad press uh, and sometimes they are tarnished as being these greedy landlords or low developers, uh, which yeah. which isn't true from my own experience, by the way, and I've been at this for the last 17 years. Uh, I thought, and I thought yeah. that was important to yeah, so, share. So while you're talking about press, actually, just just to interrupt again, and I'll, I'll shut up in a minute, it's um, a lot of people read in the press about how property investing, um, you can't make profit anymore because of Section 24. So I know we'll, we'll talk about that at some point, but, you know, um, the important thing is that that only applies to certain people. So when we come to that little section where we talk about incorporation, we'll talk about Section 24 then. But I think there's so many myths out there. We're going to blow those out of the water today. Um, but let's start with the basics, shall we? Um, I tell you where I'll start from if that's okay and I can see quite a few familiar faces because I've kind of scrolled up and down the screen to we've got Adnan we've got Jeff and, and, and quite a few others by the way so I shouldn't mention any one person by their name this is Adnan's right up there for some reason maybe he was hi Adnan he was one of the first to log in yeah. uh, but uh, so uh, I think uh, quite a few of your, of your participants today have probably heard me speak uh, somewhere at some point uh, so rather than repeating what they've already heard, um, I wanted to share four live cases uh, that we're working on right now, just to kind of set the scene and lay out how people inadvertently uh, and un- un- unknowingly miss out on things. So had a client with a different accountant uh, in uh, service accommodation, his turnover exceeds the VAT threshold, therefore he registers for VAT, has done so for the last two odd years, uh, and then uh, changes accountants to see us. And we very quickly pick up, uh, Bronwyn, that he should have qualified under the TOM scheme. This is the Tour Operators Margin Scheme. uh, And he's paid a hefty sum. Uh, I'm talking about a large five-figure sum to HMRC over the last two years in VAT, which he shouldn't have paid. Uh, now, luckily for him, we can go back uh, and we can go back up to four years uh, and make a reclaim for him, which we've done. Uh, so he's looking at a significant large five-figure sum rebate, uh, which yeah. which is welcome any time of the year. But where we are right now with the economy and obviously the pandemic, uh, Cash is king right now, uh, so hopefully that should be coming to him very quickly. So if anybody on this uh, Zoom uh, meeting is in service accommodation, you're not sure about Tom's and you're about to hit the VAT threshold, have that checked out. If you don't know anybody else, feel free to contact me. I'm more than happy to look at that for you. So that's the first one. Uh, again, 
usually you can't kind of go back and fix things. So, so, so with tax, it's important you enter into the arrangement or you know what the steps are before you enter into the transaction. So nine out of 10 times, you have to do that. Sometimes you can go back. So the ones that I'm gonna share with you, three out of the four, is where we've been able to go back. But the advice is always do it in advance. The second one, uh, interesting character, uh, he bought a couple of properties. One was uninhabitable, which was unknown to him at the time. The second one he'd bought through probate, which, and obviously he knew he was buying from probate, uh, but he wasn't aware of any stamp duty land tax uh, or exemptions available to him. So on, on the, the first one, if you buy a property which is uninhabitable, uh, and we can prove if it's uninhabitable. So this isn't the kitchen's missing or the bathroom's missing. That makes it unmortgageable. And I know they use the term uninhabitable, but the tax threshold is much higher than that. So uh, in simple terms, it should not be classed as a dwelling, i.e. the roof should be missing. Uh, if all the electrics uh, and the uh, pipe work for the plumbing's missing, all the flooring missing, it's got asbestos, those types of things take it closer to being uninhabitable. Anyhow, uh, he luckily kept photographs uh, and was able to demonstrate to us that the property was uninhabitable uh, and he'd, uh, he'd paid the additional 3% SDLT. So we made a claim for him and were able to get him a significant amount back. Once we did that, he then said, I've also bought a property from probate. Uh, but in fact, before I go on, to make that reclaim, it's important we do it, better you do it before you obviously buy the property. The second best time is to do it within 12 months of having submitted your stamp duty land tax return. So within 14 days of, of completing the property, your solicitor submits the stamp duty land tax return. We've then got 12 months to make an amended return. So for the first one, we could make the amendment because it was within the uh, last 12 months. The second one on pro probate wasn't within the last 12 months. That makes it harder. You can then attempt to make a, a reclaim uh, as an error or a mission. But if the errors on your part, HMRC are unlikely uh, to give you the rebate. However, we put the case forward that he, he, he bought through property and we explained how the uh, error had occurred. And we were able to get him a second refund for quite a few thousand pounds, by the way, uh, because he, he'd bought through probate. And both of those cases, by the way, uh, he'd found out about because he'd read on Facebook where I'd posted two separate, uh, not articles, but comments or, or, sh or short posts about, you know, if you buy a property which is uninhabitable, be aware or uh, make sure you know that you may have a claim and the second one or on probate. There are many other stamp duty land tax exemptions. I'm gonna, not gonna cover them today, but stamp duty is complicated. There are opportunities out there. Don't always think just because you're buying a property, you've got to work out what the different thresholds are and you have to pay the SDLT. There are so many different variables in there uh, that uh, most solicitors miss out on. 
uh, and you know they, they insist on filing the stamp duty land tax return but they aren't stamp duty land tax experts and I mean that in a nice way by the way and I'm sure more, most solicitors yeah. will agree with that so it's best to speak to somebody who is a SDLT or a tax expert who can advise you and from my experience of having worked with many clients uh, where we liaise with their lawyers or their solicitors they're more than happy for us to get involved because they're saying we'd rather you get proper tax advice than, than, than we have a go at it so that's those two yeah. the third one we just we just uh, just given it another example for you is um, you know I I was I was buying a property and I was going to split it into six flats and when I was buying it I created the leases before I before I completed on the purchase so I was buying a freehold and six leases uh, I was I was able to tell my solicitor what my tax accountant told me which was how I could reduce the stamp duty uh, land tax and. I could do that in advance because I'd already talked it through with my accountant. So, so it's it's talk to the expert in advance with what your plan is, but also make sure that you've got that expert to hand um, for your day to day accounting as well. Absolutely. So, it, in your case, I assume the two possibility or, or, or the three possibilities were pay the SDLT on the total purchase price. The second one was because you're buying more than one unit, you could claim multiple dwellings relief. Or the third option was because you're buying six units together, you could uh, use non-residential rates of SDLT. So then you would work out which one is going to be the best for you. And obviously, yeah, multiple dwellings. Multiple dwellings. Yeah. So then you yeah. would you'd apply that uh, and uh, get the most effective uh, tax uh, uh, outcome for yourself. So, so the third one. Had a client, uh, uh, and again, with a different advisor, uh, and they were buying a plot of land with a house on it uh, for £1.25 million. Pounds, yeah, and they had some option agreements. To want, yeah, it had, basically, the option agreement had, had been assigned four times. It's quite complicated. But to cut the long story short, again, just to kind of raise everybody's awareness, the stamp duty land tax on 1.25 million was around about, I think, 125 or 130,000 pounds or thereabouts. Uh, and we were able then to structure that particular deal where they buy the piece of land with, without the house on it. And so, so the person selling would knock down the house, which wasn't part of the purchase price. So they were doing that to make the sale happen. Uh, and we brought the stamp duty down, I think, to about £55,000 or thereabouts. Again, I don't know the numbers, but we pretty much halved it. So our best part of £55,000, £60,000 stamp duty land tax saving, just because we were able to apply the rules in a way which would make a significant difference to them. Again, this is another stamp duty land tax, exa tax exa example, but STLT is big and it's complicated and it's, it's one of the taxes which is least understood and the most misunderstood because people think it's just a case of you know working out what the, the purchase price is and then times that by the different thresholds. The fourth one, and then we're going to go into the, into the key in a Q&A because there's so many interesting questions, is uh, again, a new client bought a pub, commercial property, uh, had paid VAT on it, and her previous advisor had told her she cannot claim back the VAT. Her intention was uh, to obtain planning, build, convert the pub into flats, and then sell the flats. 
uh, and again a large significant five figure sum for the VAT again luckily for her it was within the last four years so we registered her uh, backdated the registration date to the dates that uh, she purchased the property and that's going through right now and I'm very confident she's again going to get a, a large uh, five-figure sum in terms of a VAT rebate uh, and th this was unknown to her by the way so this was a pleasant surprise uh, yeah. so I, I hope those kind of four very quick examples point out to people some of the avenues available to them when they are looking to either buy property or looking at service accommodation or stamp duty land tax or even VAT what can I compare this to and uh, and it's a nice, it's a good question by the way uh, and it gets accountants very excited and I guess you can com compare this question to going to a vicar or a priest or an imam or a rabbi and asking them about the purpose and meaning of life <laughs> that's what this question is like to an accountant by the way uh, because the answer is very very complicated and very very comprehensive and even then if you ask 20 accountants this question it's one of the few questions by the way where, you, where you'll get 20 different answers okay All right. that's how vast this particular question is so if we were to keep it really really simple uh, really really simple is a revenue expenditure or a cost is something which is in year a capital or expense or expenditure is something which has more than one year's worth of useful life. So let's simpl simplify it uh, for people. What could be classed as revenue? So if you paint the interior or exterior of a property, that would be a revenue expense. If you had some damp and you were going to treat that damp, that would be revenue expense. If you to do some repointing uh, in one of your properties, that would be a, a revenue expense. If a few tiles fell off and you were replacing uh, uh, the uh, roof tiles, that would be a revenue expense. If you are enhancing the value of a property, i.e. we have an extension built, therefore we improve the value or increase the value of a property, that would be a capital expense. Uh, or if we uh, improve something or increase the life of something by longer than a year, more often than not, it's going to be a capital expenditure, but there are a lot of grey areas. So partly it depends on the useful life of that particular item, but partly uh, it depends on exactly what it is. Uh, so there are different tests that can be applied. I'm not going to go into those because that's kind of going to bore people. I'll mention those two people anyhow, if anybody's interested in reading more about it. So there's something called the enduring benefit test. If anybody wants to go online, look at that. That's going to give you a bit more about what a capital expense is. Then there's something called the enduring. So uh, then there's something called sorry, the entirety test. That again gives you a bit more clarity on what may be capital. Uh, and then there are things like is it a tangible asset if it's a tangible asset physical asset it's going to be capital not revenue is it an intangible asset like goodwill or uh, an ip or, or, or of some sort that's going to be a, a capital item but it's it's a good question which requires a very long comprehensive answer 
uh, and to really do any justice to the question, uh, I'd have to spend over an hour. One of the most important things, uh, especially for, for property investors, is to make sure that they've got the right business structure. Uh, and I probably spend a third of my time uh, helping people fix a structure uh, and just like if you get a builder or a contractor in, in, in your property or on your development, if halfway through you change that contractor, go to a new contractor, it's now going to cost you twice as much to get the work finished. Uh, the same applies uh, to, to tax and accountancy. It's, if, if you try and fix the structure subsequently, it's going to cost you a lot more than having gotten or started with the right structure from day one. So some of the things I think people should be thinking about, um, and we're not going to go into the, into the mechanics, but I'm just going to point them out to people and they can then think about them, is when you're thinking about the structure, you want to think about how many people are involved and what's going to be the most flexible structure for having this many or this number of people involved. Then overall, you want to be thinking about what's the overall flexibility of using a particular vehicle. So be it sole trader partnership, limited liability partnership, limited company or a hybrid of a mixed partnership, which is a, a, a partnership and a, or LLP usually and a, and a limited company. Above and beyond that, you want to be thinking about the admin costs. So. Generally speaking, a limited company has higher costs in terms of maintenance than uh, a sole trader. So you want to bear those in mind. Above and beyond that, you then want to compare the tax costs. So how much tax am I going to pay if I have a limited company versus a sole trader or a partnership? And don't just base that on one property, for example. If your goal is to have, say, 30 properties or 50 properties, work out what you think the average profit per property might be per year and then work out the tax on that too. Uh, and that will give you uh, a, a handle on things. Then you want to be thinking about other commercial considerations, i.e. if I bring in other partners, how easy is it to bring them in using my existing structure? If I want to raise finance, which structure is going to be uh, best lend, lend itself to raising more finance. If I want to have a joint venture partner, which structure is going to be uh, the best for that? Above and beyond that, then you want to be thinking about some people like the privacy. So having a sole trader or a partnership business is fine because nobody actually gets to find out about your business whatsoever because nothing's in the public domain. The only three or four people who might know about your business is you, your accountant, possibly, possibly husband or wife, and the taxman or HMRC. Whereas if you have a limited company, obviously you, you're uh, registered with company's house and you file uh, your confirmation statement uh, every single year. Uh, so the, the information becomes public. That to some people is an important uh, consideration. Uh, then there's other things like if I want to give share options, which uh, uh, route's going to be best? And then the, the most important, I think, which most people don't pay as much attention to as they should do, is what, in terms of exit strategy, what's my exit strategy and which structure is going to be the most flexible for me at that time? So those are some of the considerations that the person should be thinking about when they're getting into any business, but property more so than other businesses, because obviously with any of the business, if you, let's go back to our, our restaurant, turning over 50,000 pounds, now wants to incorporate. Generally speaking, they usually don't own the, own the premises, so we just incorporate their business. Property investor wants to incorporate. They've got eight properties. 
Now you've got, got to consider capital gains tax. Now you've got to consider stamp duty land tax. And then we move on to incorporation. So it becomes a much more costly exercise. Therefore, it's more important property investors get that right from the outset. Some of the most sophisticated or advanced investors who I work with or one, who, people who, who I meet and I, I speak to don't ever use one particular structure. So they might have six limited companies, for example, with a holding company structure, but they also have some form of a sole trader business. They might have a limited liability partnership. They'll have a standard partnership. So, so they'll use all the different vehicles available to them to best maximize their uh, property business. I think the, the first thing to do, state uh, Bronwyn is never let the tax tail wag the dog. So tax is an important consideration, but it's not the only consideration. It's not the main consideration. So don't just, I think when, when people say, oh, just because of section 24, uh, yeah. you should now incorporate, uh, that alone should not be uh, the main reason why people incorporate and I've kind of run through some of the of the reasons why people would be looking to incorporate uh, some of some other perhaps reasons could be uh, that they are uh, limited liabilities important to them so they don't want to put their family home and their personal assets on the line so they're saying I'd rather have a limited company so that might be an important reason for some, obviously, or for in fact, for, for a significant number, tax mitigation uh, is uh, important. For others, uh, taking out money at certain times and the timing of that is important. So obviously, if you're a sole trader, uh, you pay the tax on the profits, even if you leave the money in the bank account because you are the business. Same with the partnership. Whereas if you're a limited company, the company pays corporation tax, but you don't pay any personal income tax unless you take a salary or a dividend or some form of a distribution. So, so they go into a limited company because it allows them to control how much income they take and when they take it. Uh, so they have they have a, 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 a yeah. they think about that quite deeply. Some people I think have a limited company because they think it's quite prestigious to say they're a company director. That means something to them, by the way. Uh, and uh, who, who am I to say, uh, Bronwyn, horses for courses, if that means something to somebody and uh, having the title director uh, uh, makes them feel happier uh, and more engaged, why not? Uh, and then, of course, there are certain tax reliefs available only to limited companies which aren't available to a sole trader or partnership. So I'll quickly run through two or three. So land remediation relief is not available to a sole trader or a partnership, but is available to a limited company. Okay, R&D tax credits available to a limited company, not available to a sole trader partnership. Investors relief available to a limited company, not available to a sole trader or a partnership. So those are some of the other things people should be thinking about. Now, if somebody says uh, they don't have it, and again, it's, and I think you're right, one size does not fit all. So it's, so it's difficult for me to make up a scenario. But if somebody said, I don't have a job, I've got say, 100,000 pounds to invest, I want to buy four or five properties, and those five properties are going to be single lets, and I envisage that the part of the country that they're in they're going to make me £30,000 profit per year, for example, uh, mm -hmm. then I would say, 
well, why do we want to have a limited company? Yeah. And if they give me some of the other reasons, by the way, which are important to them, which I've kind of gone through, yes, we would obviously compare and contrast. If somebody says, I work in the city and I'm earning, let's say, £60,000 a year, I want to have 10 properties over the next five years, I don't need any additional income because I've got enough coming in from my salary. So I'd rather invest most of my profits or recycle and reinvest them. Uh, then I'd say having a limited company would be good because you pay, pay corporation tax at 19%. So the other 80, 81% now you can recycle, use that to, as deposits to buy further properties. So those are two basic scenarios. And then there's 164 scenarios in between. Well, I've had so many people, by the way, Bronwyn, uh, speak to me who thought incorporation was the right route for them. They've gone to speak to a, a particular accountant or tax advisor, and they've been quoted a large four-figure, five-figure sum to incorporate. Okay. Yes. Uh, and uh, when we've looked at it, I said, hold on a moment. I don't think you need to incorporate for X, Y, Z reason. And I think people kind of jump on the bandwagon to some extent uh, because they think everybody around me is doing this, therefore I need to do it too. So Section 24 obviously does affect people if they've got finance, if their uh, income takes them into, into the higher rate threshold, uh, then they'll only get 20% uh, uh, tax credit or they'll keep it simple, they'll, they'll get 20% relief. So, so they get half the relief if, if they become a high rate taxpayer. But it depends on, is that significant enough? Does that justify you incorporating? Because if incorporating means you'll have to pay capital gains tax because section 162 incorporation relief doesn't apply to you. If incorporating means you'll have to pay stamp duty land tax because you want trading as a partnership. Okay, if both of those numbers outweigh uh, the section 24 increase in tax over say the next five or 10 years, then you're probably, it's probably not worth incorporating. However, if somebody's just starting off and they've got some of their income and they're looking to grow their property portfolio, then as a blanket answer, although blanket, uh, blanket answers are dangerous, but as a blanket answer, then probably having a limited company uh, is a good place to start. But I don't think section 24 alone should be the only reason to think about incorporating because who knows? What if tomorrow or next week and next month, and those people who've, who've heard me speak before would have heard me say this, what if in a, in a, a year's time, Ricky Sunak, the chances Section 24 now applies to limited companies? Yeah, absolutely. So there are, I mean, certain limitations and restrictions in terms of how much rent or what uh, fees you can charge uh, your property portfolio. So if you've got all the properties in your name and then you form a management company which is going to manage those properties you can only charge up to 15 percent uh, per year per year per month uh, or of the rent to, to manage those properties but if you've got three uh, we'd have to look at the numbers quite deeply just to make sure is it worth paying the extra accountancy fees and the tax return and everything else uh, to make it viable that's just one consideration uh, but uh, if you have a larger portfolio and incorporation doesn't work for you for some reason, uh, then having a management company and charging uh, a management fee would work well as long as you stay below the 15%. But the other thing you need to bear in mind, by the way, is 
if that 15%, if it is 15%, it can be 5%, it can be 10%, but let's stick with 15%. If that 15% element exceeds the VAT threshold, then you've got to charge VAT on it too. So again, that, that could scupper the whole arrangement for you too. And it might be today, we don't exceed the VAT threshold, but if you're aggressively buying more properties, then maybe in three or four years time, you might get to that situation. So that's something people need to think about too. Something else which I will cover off uh, is contractors, generally speaking, and I'm generalizing here, uh, tend to be cash rich in their company because most of them uh, are on a good day rate uh, and they tend to take out a small salary, let's just say eight or nine thousand pounds, and then they take dividends uh, to use up their basic rate of tax. And then they leave the rest of the money there, which accumulates and piles up. And now, let's just say they've got a hundred thousand pounds sat in their bank account, which isn't doing anything. Yeah. Uh, so obviously, if they take that money out, they've got to pay income tax. That means uh, from the hundred grand, they might only have. 60 or, or, or 45, pounds remaining. So they've got two clear options. What they could do is they could buy property through their contracting company. There are certain things they need to bear in mind with that, but they could do that. Or what they could do is they could loan that money to a new limited company, for example, and then possibly charge interest. And when they, when they loan that money, uh, they, they can use 100% of it. Or the third option, and again, this needs to be done with caution, is they could set up a holding company and then the contracting company can then push the money up into the holding company tax-free and the holding company can then push that down into, into the buy-to-let company or their property development company uh, and then they can start doing deals. So those are some of the options available to them because 100, 100 grand sat in the bank, for example, and I've seen bigger figures than 100 grand, by the way, uh, isn't earning much interest and, and people are keen to kind of do something with it uh, and uh, they can't because the, the advice they usually get, unfortunately, is I'll take that money out of your company first, pay the tax on the dividend and then invest. And then people aren't keen to do that because that's a large chunk of change. So there are things you can do with the money without taking it out of the company or by putting it into your own personal hands. As we've said earlier, it's important to do the calculation to figure out not just the tax, but all the other different things, including inheritance to see. Does it make it worthwhile? Because if you think about it, Roman, you might incorporate and you might end up paying a higher rate of interest, might be a higher rate of interest, and that higher rate of interest might negate most of the tax savings on Section 24. So yes. uh, this is why you've got to do the numbers to make sure that it, it works out for you. I mean, the good old days before Section 24, generally speaking, accountants used to say, if you're earning over 35, 40,000 pounds, then you should think about incorporating because uh, there are the, the, the tax savings then start becoming substantial and significant. And this is pre-2015-16 when we never used to pay the 7.5% tax on the basic rate dividend. Uh, for, for property investors, that isn't the only consideration because obviously you've got section 24 are you uh, uh, in, in, into the higher rate of tax threshold what do you want to do with with your properties are, are you on fixed rate uh, mortgages uh, which means you're going to have higher redemption penalties so only last week i was talking to somebody uh, from 
Nottingham. She's got, I think it was 18 or 26 properties. Most of them uh, had a redemption penalty. So I said, it's not even worth going into this. Can you find out what they are first? And she said, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm happy to proceed. I said, no, no, find out. She came back and said, redemption penalties are 75,000 pounds. Wasn't worth doing. And we stopped. Uh, so once you've worked out the numbers, if it's, if you then think the savings over the next five years and longer are, are going to be significant enough for you to incorporate, then I would say, okay, let's move. Above and beyond that, you then need to consider is, do you have a business? So for example, if we use the example of our friend earlier who has a contracting company and has three properties, it would be very difficult for them to justify that those three properties amount to a uh, business. Therefore, if he or she incorporates, they'll have to pay capital gains tax on the value of the properties or on the gain. That in itself, by the way, Bronwyn, means it probably isn't worth incorporating. And then if all of those properties are in their own name, then they'll be stamp duty land tax payable. Again, it doesn't make it worth incorporating. So I'd love to give a kind of a checklist of saying, here's the four things that need to apply to you to incorporate. Uh, it's difficult to do that because every situation and scenario is different. Uh, but uh, the most important one is do the sums and consider all the different avenues and issues that affect you, including the exit strategy, whether it's passing uh, property down to your children, grandchildren or selling, consider that too. And then think, are we now going to be better of incorporating versus the cost of incorporating. So, you know, the fees are substantial. I've seen figures from 10,000, uh, once or twice, a little bit lower than that, all the way up to 65,000 pounds. And so, you know, uh, it, you need to think about, is it worth me investing this much money? And if I do, and the tax rules change in 12 months time, you have yeah. lost that too. So, And that is a bigger consideration today because the chances made it very clear that he is going to tax change the tax regime because obviously the government's borrowed uh, and spent a lot of money through COVID and we're all going to have to pay it back and that means tax will have to go up in some form or another. That could be section 24 for property investors. I don't know. It depends on the type of property business you've got because if you are if you've just got uh, property that, that, that you're holding on to uh, so it's just buy to let in whichever guise it could be, whether it's single lets or whether it's uh, HMOs, uh, versus a property development or a property trading business. So it, it depends which one it is, because if it's a property development business, then you'll get business property relief or business relief uh, on the value of the shares. Uh, so that changes the whole dynamic for inheritance tax. If you just own the properties in your own name, uh, and you hold on to them, and then you're going to uh, give them to, to your children, then obviously there's capital gains tax to pay, and then there could be uh, inheritance tax in the future. So it depends on this question, as in which business are we talking about, buy to let or a property trading uh, business. Above and beyond that, uh, the first thing I would say to people is, uh, and the really easy one, and I think not enough accountants share this with, with their 
clients possibly from what I hear is you can get insurance, life insurance to cover the inheritance tax uh, liability. So that's one of the first things you should be thinking about. Uh, yes. And uh, above and beyond that, if you can't get life insurance of the premiums high for whatever reason, you think you, you, you can't afford it uh, or it doesn't work for you, then we can start thinking about all the different mechanisms available to you to incorporate. And I think this question was also linked with, do I pay off my mortgages uh, for estate planning or not? So the simple answer is no, because the value of your estate okay, reduces okay, by the amount of money you owe as debt on your mortgages. So if you own five properties worth 200 grand each, by the way, so a million pounds worth of uh, uh, properties, but you've got 700,000 pounds worth of mortgages, then the value of your estate is only 300,000 pounds. It's not a million pounds. Whereas if you pay off all the mortgages, then the value of the estate is a million pounds. So uh, I'd say uh, keep those mortgages going uh, and then the way you can refinance and buy more properties. But that's my personal advice to myself, by the way, for other people that might not work because they might not want to buy more properties and having too much debt might not be something which is right for them. Then we've got the whole new kind of, well, not new, but new to us today here, the whole kind of worms about setting up trusts and how that works. And that's going to take us a, lot, a, a long time, but that, that's something for people to then consider as, a, as in, should I set up a trust? And if you're looking to incorporate, by the way, and you're looking to pass property down to your children, when you incorporate, that's a good time to be thinking about setting up a trust and then to have the trust own the shares in the limited company. Because one of the big problems you have, obviously, is the capital gains tax issue when you're passing property over to your children. And, and when you incorporate, you've kind of covered that, you've got over that, you've had a rebasing of the value of your, your properties. So at that time, if you give some of those shares to your children, or as many shares as you want, through not shares, but uh, the uh, ownership of, of the trust, so you give the shares to the trust, it's a, the good, a good time to do that is when you incorporate. Yeah, but, but if you're managing your own properties uh, and you're, let's say, on the cusp or Section 24 just affects you by a few thousand pounds, then and then if you form a limited company to manage those properties and you charge a 15% management fee and that kind of keeps you below the Section 24 charge, then, of course, it would make sense for you to do that. If you're looking to manage other people's properties, then I'll take you back to the earlier point we made at the start in terms of look at the different structures and see which one works best for you. So uh, yeah. depending on what that question is, uh, it, it's yes or no. If, if you've loaned money to your company, yeah. uh, depending on your overall income, you can charge interest to the company uh, and if you're a basic rate taxpayer and you have no other savings income, your first thousand pounds is tax-free under your personal savings allowance. If you're a high rate taxpayer, your five, first 500 pounds is tax-free uh, if you've got no other savings income. So that in itself would help you. Uh, above and beyond that, if you're on a very low salary of let's say nine and a half thousand pounds, you can then charge interest not just to use up your 
personal savings allowance, but then you've got something called your starting rate savings uh, allowance as well, which is up to £5,000. But as long as your overall income stays below £17,500, you can claim that too. Now that would take me a while to kind of run through an example to explain how that works. So, so I, so I think I think this is depending on your overall income. If you're on a very low salary, then personal savings allowance and your starting rate savings uh, will work well for you. So, so, so charge interest. However, if you do that, the company has to file a CT61 return to show that it's paid you interest. But that's just more of a compliance issue. If somebody gets a loan from a bank and let's say the bank says or a bank says I will charge you 3% above base for example okay yeah. uh, so that's let's say the market rate and I know interest rates differ bank to bank but let's just assume everybody's charging 3% okay uh, then uh, it could be argued that's a commercial rate now if a director loans money to their company should they then charge 3% because that's the market rate or a commercial rate? But let's compare and contrast this. So when you go to a bank, uh, depending on the value or the amount of the loan, uh, the bank expects some kind of security. They'll, okay, they'll expect a personal guarantee. Not every single loan, but they'll expect a personal guarantee uh, more often than not. They will then expect you to make monthly repayments. They, they then expect or they'll have a debenture depending if it's a, a limited company they'll be yeah. uh, listed as a preferential creditor so something goes wrong they're up the high up the pecking order to be to be repaid now if mr x loans money to their company does the company uh, offer any security no is there any kind of personal guarantee no does the company make monthly repayments more often than not no. If the company goes bust, is the director a preferential creditor? No. Okay, now let's go to the bank and say no security, no personal guarantee, no monthly repayments. I'm a very nice guy. I promise you I'll pay you something in the future, but no monthly repayments and you are not going to be a preferential creditor because I'm a nice guy. I'm not going to go bust. What rate of interest are you going to charge me, Mr. Bank Manager? Uh, and uh, yeah, you can imagine the answer, Bronwyn, can't you? Uh, yeah, so now 3% isn't reasonable anymore. Maybe 10% is reasonable. Thanks for listening to Wealth Made Simple. You can follow and contact Shaz on the Facebook pages Entrust Property Tax and The Profits Wizard. You can also find Shaz on LinkedIn, YouTube and Instagram. Alternatively, email him at shaz at aa-accountants.co.uk. Build your wealth by mastering money.